Good morning, church. Man, my grandfather, my grandpa would be so proud that we sang farther along this morning. What a great song. Uh, This morning, we are starting a new sermon series. Um, We spent the last three weeks in Mark chapter 2 looking at three questions that were brought to Jesus. Uh, This morning, we're transitioning, and so for the next several months, we're going to be working verse by verse through uh, the epistle of 1 Peter. Now, I I don't know how much time you've spent uh, maybe studying this book of the Bible um, or how much exposure you have to it, but it is a letter packed full of amazing realities about the believer's identity in Christ and what it means to live faithfully as a kingdom citizen in the culture. There's stuff in this book for husbands and wives, for workers and masters, for elders and shepherds of the church and for churches and members. Peter deals a lot with the theme of suffering He's going to deal with the theme of spiritual warfare. This book of the Bible is chock full of rich gospel truths. And and I really believe that God has led us to this book of the Bible at this particular moment in the life of our church. And I believe that God wants to awaken us to the gospel in new and fresh ways and to conform us into the image of Christ. I think anytime we start a new series, especially a sermon series that's going to walk through a book of the Bible, it's helpful to remind ourselves that the Bible's claim of itself, as well as the church's testimony, really from the first century on, is that all scripture is inspired by God. That the journey we're about to embark on is not just a study of one man's opinion about God. Not the mere writings of an apostle of Jesus or or even the exploration of a document that contains the word of God. No, we believe that scripture is the word of God. That every sentence, every word, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That what we have in the book of 1 Peter is the infallible and the authoritative word of the living God. And so, to the extent that we interpret and understand the words of this letter correctly, the voice of God is speaking to us. Let's not miss that. What tremendous weight we ought to feel with that reality. The work before us as we start this series is no trite matter. And and I want to exhort us not to trifle with this book of Scripture. Let's not not come into this series as, as critics ready to offer our opinions. Let's not come as consumers ready to be entertained. But let's come as beggars ready to be fed. Let's come as apprentices ready to be discipled by Jesus and let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our ears to listen to what he has to say to us that we might be changed. And so I just want to pause as we begin this series and just ask the Lord to help us before we dive in. God, we 
are too familiar with the idea of Scripture. We have multiple versions, many of us, of your word in our house, on our shelf. And it is, it is easy for us to approach your word too lightly. And so God, as we begin this new series, studying the book of 1 Peter, we pray that you would help us to feel the weight of these words, that God Almighty, the living creator, is speaking to us. That God, you want us to know you, that you want to have relationship with us, that you want us to show us the way to life. And so Lord, we are here now saying, speak Lord, for your servants are listening. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God endures forever. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The wonder of Scripture is, is that it is simultaneously the very word of God and also the work of men. What, what we believe about Scripture is that it was inspired by God, but that it wasn't some sort of a, a, a dictation where, where God was telling men and women exactly what to write, but that they wrote in their unique voice from their particular vantage point from a certain time in history that, that they wrote, but that as they wrote, the Spirit was guiding them and leading them. And so as we come to different books of the Bible, we come to different authors and we're reminded that each author is different, that they wrote from a particular vantage point. And so First Peter as we might expect, was, was written by the Apostle Peter, perhaps with the aid of, of an assistant. Peter, his Hebrew name was Simon. But Jesus gave him the name Cephas in Aramaic. In, in Greek, it's, it's Petros, and, and it means rock. Jesus told Peter as he called him to be his disciple, Peter, you are Peter, and I will build my church. You are, and, and on this rock, I will build my church. Peter was the, the vocal leader of the 12 disciples. He's, he was the loudmouth. We see the best and worst in Peter. It was Peter who testified of Jesus. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he was also Peter who tried to prevent the Christ from going to the cross, which led Jesus to rebuke Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. It was Peter who denied his Lord three times when asked, aren't you also one of his disciples? While Jesus was being tried. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus came to Peter and restored Peter to ministry. Three times, Jesus looks Peter in the eyes and asks him, Peter, do you love me? Forcing Peter to reaffirm his love once for each denial. And then Jesus issues a call, Peter, feed my sheep. Jesus restores Peter to ministry. 
And soon after, it's Peter who receives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and boldly proclaims the gospel. And 3,000 people were saved and baptized in one day. The apostle Peter went on to lead the early church, first from Jerusalem and then according to tradition from the city of Rome, where Peter was martyred for his faith in Jesus, being crucified upside down. It's likely from the city of Rome that Peter pins this letter that we're about to study. And this raises the question for us, to whom is Peter writing? And what is his relationship with the readers of this letter? He identifies the recipients as believers living in exile in the regions of Pontus and Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's, it's a region about the size of the state of California, just north of the Taurus Mountains in what is modern day Turkey. In the scriptures, it's referred to as Asia Minor. One commentator describes the setting as a vast area with small cities, few and far between, of a diversified population of indigenous peoples, Greek settlers, and Roman colonists. And so the apostle is writing to Christians who have been dispersed or scattered across a vast region of Asia Minor. And so who are these believers and how did they end up in this region and what is their relationship to Peter? There are different theories that try to answer this question. One theory is that when Peter proclaimed the gospel at Pentecost, some from this region were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths and they heard Peter's sermon. In fact, in, in the table of nations in Acts chapter two, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia are all mentioned. And so it could be that pilgrims came down to Jerusalem for the feast, heard Peter proclaim the gospel at Pentecost, believed in Jesus, and then took the good news back with them to Asia Minor, and the gospel spread. And that when Peter learned that the gospel had spread to this region, he took up pen and wrote to encourage these believers. Another theory that I actually find particularly compelling is that, that during the reign of Emperor Claudius, which was about 41 to 54 AD, that Claudius was, was known for aggressively colonizing and expanding the Roman Empire. In fact, Claudius is the only emperor known to have colonized all five of the areas mentioned in verse one. And one of the ways that Claudius would pursue colonization was to send out troublemakers from Rome to a new territory in a remote area of the empire. And so according to, to one ancient historian, Suetonius, some Jews known for causing disturbances at the instigation of Crestus were expelled from Rome under Claudius' reign. So some take Suetonius' mention of this Crestus figure to actually be a reference to Christ and believe that this group he's referring to are not actually Jews, but converts to Christianity. Remember that in early Christianity, um, it developed from within Judaism. And so it's understandable how Suetonius could have perceived this group as Jews when in reality they were Jews and Gentiles who had begun to follow Jesus. In other words, this, this group that was sent out from Rome causing a disturbance were Christians. And if so, then we may have a key to understanding who these exiles are that Peter is writing to as he begins his letter. He's writing to believers 
who were forced to leave Rome because of their faith in Christ and made to resettle in Asia Minor. They are exiles who have been scattered abroad. That word exile was used in the first century for someone who didn't hold citizenship in a place where he resided. It was another way of calling someone a foreigner. I don't know if you've ever found yourself visiting a foreign country. Maybe you've lived in a foreign country. If so, then you've probably experienced the sense of not truly or fully fitting into a place. I can remember several years ago going on a trip to East Africa. And as we deboarded the plane and got on a land cruiser and began to ride through town, we could hear some kids on the side of the road begin to shout this word over and over. And so I asked my friend, what are they saying? And they were shouting, Mzungu, Mzungu, which means whitey, white people. We stood out like sore thumbs. And I knew very distinctly that I didn't fit in fully in this place. And by the same token, these, these believers who had turned from their pagan ways or even turned from Judaism to the full reality of Judaism, which is Jesus, seeing that he's the Messiah, their conversion to Christ caused them to stand out. Their allegiance to Jesus no longer allowed them to participate in the pagan ways of worship of their neighbors. They, they no longer shared all of the same values and practices as the local citizens. They were outsiders, both in Rome and in their new location, due to their faith in Jesus. They were foreigners. And this is one of the fundamental realities that Peter is going to teach us in this letter that allegiance to Jesus changes your relationship with the world. This is just as true in 21st century United States as it was in first century Asia Minor. Karen Job says, by virtue of faith in Christ, home is heaven and Christians therefore are just passing through this world as foreigners. Edmund Clowney reminds us that we carry another passport. And as a result of their allegiance to Christ, these believers were not only feeling foreignness, they were also beginning to experience it through mistreatment and persecution. They, they were being alienated and ostracized, cut off from business transactions, they were being insulted and mocked for their new faith, falsely accused and, and slandered. Their social status and even their livelihood were being threatened. Their faith in terms of, in terms of their, their relationship with their neighbors was negatively impacting their lives and their families. And you can imagine the grief that this caused them. And so, to these persecuted believers who are disoriented by the hardships and suffering that they're facing because of their allegiance to Jesus, Peter begins his letter by reminding them of who they are. In verse one, he chooses the word 
eclectois to describe the recipients of his letter. And this is given to them as a fundamental identity for these who are confused by their circumstances. They are God's elect. This is a term that in the Old Testament referred to Israel's special status as God's chosen people. Israel was God's chosen ones. And now Peter picks up on that term and he applies it to believers saying in essence, listen, you might feel rejected by the world, but you need to know that you are God's special people. Let me remind you who you are. You are God's chosen ones. What do we need to know more than anything when we find ourselves struggling? We find ourselves feeling out of place in the world. What do we need to know amidst suffering and persecution and hardship? We need to know that we're God's children. And so Peter assures them that they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Clowney notes that this expression, foreknowledge, does not mean that God merely had information in advance about his elect. He says it means that his people were the objects of his love, of his loving concern from all eternity. Suffering believer, listen to me. Long before you were ever born, you were deeply loved by God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestined to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Your salvation is no accident. It's no afterthought. If you have come to faith in Christ, what Peter is telling us, what Paul is telling us is that you were foreknown and chosen and predestined to be adopted as God's child through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we come to this doctrine of election and, and we turn it into a debate. We get, we get bent sideways about this. Well, who's chosen and who's not? And that's not fair and so on. We get, we get lost in these debates. Listen to me, the doctrine of election is not intended to be a controversial idea. It's intended to be a comfort. The doctrine of election is a blanket of grace. Your salvation is secure and God's love for you is not in question. Receive that. Long before you ever knew Christ, he knew you by name. And he came for you. God saw you through the corridors of time, lost in your sin, and he purposed to save you and to make you his child. God the Father sent the Son to earth to die in your place. And in the course of time, you heard the gospel and the Spirit opened your heart to receive the good news and you believed in Jesus and he brought you into the family. And listen to me. If God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for you to make you his child, then surely, surely your present hardship is no indication of his abandonment. Your current struggle is no indicator of his aloofness. Isn't that what we're tempted to think? In times of hardship, in times of struggle, in times of suffering, we tend to think that if we're suffering, something's wrong, that God's left us. 
And what Peter's saying is no. That is certifiably not the case. In fact, the common experience of God's people throughout the history of redemption has been one of pilgrimage. Abraham was a sojourner in a foreign land. The people of Israel suffered for 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Later, the people of God were dispersed outside of Israel in the Babylonian exile. God's people commonly find themselves living as foreigners in a strange land. We are pilgrims. And Peter invites us into this identity. Listen to me, this is a hard word, but it's a true word. Suffering is part of the Christian program. Lest we forget Christ himself suffered. That he was an outsider who was rejected by his people and crucified. And he says to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. And so we need to know here that as followers of Jesus, there is going to be a tension we feel living in this world. But we rest in the reality that we have been chosen to be God's children. And we look in hope to a kingdom that is coming to which we belong. And this leads us into the second reality I think we need to see. Peter reminds these believers, he reminds us not only that they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, but also that they have been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be made obedient to Christ. It's easy to imagine, isn't it, how these believers to whom Peter is writing would have been tempted to compromise their faith by succumbing to the culture. If they blend in, the persecution goes away. If they suppress their beliefs, suddenly they're back at the business table and can provide for their families. If they deny their faith, the slander and the maligning will stop. And we understand this, don't we? It's perhaps a little more subtle here in our context. But on a daily basis, in various ways, we are tempted to accommodate our faith by assimilating to the culture. We feel the pressure, don't we? To fit in and to, and to therefore say nothing when we know that we should speak up. We wanna be liked and so we laugh at the crude joke. We don't wanna be the weird person with the radical faith and so we keep our mouth shut. We feel the pressure to overlook the foggy ethics of a decision at work because we don't want to be that guy. We don't want to be labeled as closed-minded and unloving or intolerant, and so we hide from what the Bible says about gender and sexuality. We easily get lost in the game of trying to win at life. And we lose sight of the reality that we belong to a different kingdom. We can so easily forget who we are, can't we? And here Peter reminds us not only that we have been chosen to be in God's family, but also that we have been chosen to be holy and obedient to Christ. 
That we have been set apart by the Holy Spirit and sprinkled with the blood of Christ. This language of of consecration and sprinkling with blood takes us back to Exodus 24 as the people of God stood at the base of Mount Sinai with the law presented to them and they took the blood of an animal and they sprinkled the covenant and they sprinkled the people and they made a commitment to God to keep covenant with him. They said to him, I will be, God had said to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And they said to God, we'll do all that you require of us. And yet the Mosaic covenant ultimately proved powerless to actually change their hearts. And what we read in the rest of the Old Testament story is that time and again, they failed to live in obedience. But these believers to whom Peter is writing, they haven't been sprinkled with the blood of an animal. Peter Peter reminds them that you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. That your new covenant believers, that you have been brought into covenant with God by the sacrifice of his son Jesus, that you have been consecrated by the Holy Spirit. You've been filled with the very spirit of God and under the new covenant, there is real power to walk in obedience. By the inner working of the the spirit, you have the ability to actually walk with God. Do you believe that this morning? Believer, you have been transformed and transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You are God's chosen one, filled with the spirit and empowered to obey. I think one of the greatest struggles we face in our lives is to simply appropriate our gospel identity. In other words, one of the greatest struggles we face is to believe what God says about us and to live as who we are in Christ. And so Peter begins his letter with a simple reminder of who we are in Christ. We are elect exiles, God's chosen ones, beloved and set apart unto Christ. And here's my simple question for us. What if we woke up each morning and meditated on that reality? How might that change the way we live our days? What if we took time in our city group text threads? If you're not on one of those, you should be. What if we took time in our text threads to remind one another, you are God's adopted. You are his beloved. There's nothing you could do to cause him to unlove you. You're secure, you're kept. Or what if we texted one another and said, God's spirit dwells in you. You've been set apart and empowered to walk in step with him today. Because the spirit of Christ in you is in you, you have the ability to say no to sin and to say yes to holiness. I think if we begin to grasp our identity as God's chosen ones, his special people, it would reshape the way we lived. If we began to grasp who we are, 
I believe we'd begin to experience the grace and the peace that Peter assures us have been multiplied to us. He, he ends this opening section with may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace is yours, beloved. Peace is yours for you are God's chosen and consecrated people. Isn't that amazing? Live into that reality. Let's pray together. Father, the great struggle of our lives is to grab hold of what you've already given us through your son, Jesus. Jesus, you've done everything to make us God's children. You have been the obedient son we could not be. You have offered your life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and you have risen from the grave to give us power over sin and death. Help us to grab onto that by faith. Help us to know that we are loved. Help us to know that we are empowered by your spirit to live in obedience. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.